Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks, an audio travel guide aimed to inspire you and your family to visit America's national parks and help you get the most out of your park experience. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 19.4. This is the fourth episode in our series on Yosemite National Park. I had the great honor to speak about the legacy of American icon, Ansel Adams with his son, Michael, grandson, Matthew, and internationally known photographer and Ansel's last darkroom assistant, Alan Ross. We talk about family camping trips, his sense of humor and outlook on life, his passion for nature, photography, and conservation, and the new book, Ansel Adams Yosemite. If this is your first time tuning in, go back and listen to other episodes in our Yosemite series, including our trip report, a conversation with park naturalist Eric Westerlund, and musician Tom Bopp sings for us while recounting the 1903 camping trip with President Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir. Upcoming topics in our Yosemite series include buffalo soldiers, mountaineering, geology, and tips for planning your own trip to Yosemite. We also want to hear about your adventures. Do you have a story to tell about your family's experience at a national park? A favorite recommendation to share or how this podcast helped enrich your trip? Email us at hello at everybody'snps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybody'snps.com. Before I get to today's topic, I want to take a moment to talk about listener support. If you are already a patron of the podcast, Thank you so much, and feel free to skip ahead one minute to today's conversation. If you are not yet a patron and you want to hear my thoughts on this topic, here they are. This podcast is a labor of love. We were looking for a podcast that would help us in planning our family trips to national parks. We could not find one, and so we decided to create the podcast we were looking for. I ask you this question, has this podcast brought you value? If so, would you consider becoming a patron by offering financial support? Patreon is a platform that allows for recurring monthly support for as low as a dollar per month. You may find a link on our website, everybody'snationalparks.com, to support the show. Thank you to all of our patrons. Now let's get to the conversation. I have the great honor today to be joined by Michael Adams, the son of Ansel Adams, Matthew Adams, the grandson of Ansel Adams, and Alan Ross, internationally known photographer and educator who worked side by side with Ansel as his photographic assistant and was personally selected by Ansel to print his Yosemite special edition negatives. Alan took on the role of making the special edition prints that are the core of the book, Ansel Adams Yosemite, which comes out on October 29th, published by Little Brown and Company. Hello, Michael, Matthew, and Alan. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure, Alan. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I wanted to say a little bit more about Michael, your background. You were born in Yosemite Valley. And from what I understand, you are a retired pilot and doctor. And now you are chairman of the board of the Ansel Adams Gallery, which has been in operation for 117 years and in the family. 
And you're also an advisor to the Center for Creative Photography at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Yes, I have been in the past. Okay. You've got it pretty much correct. And I'm very happy to be here and happy to talk about my dad. And then you're also a council member of the Yosemite Conservancy. So yes. thank you for all that you do for Yosemite and for keeping the legacy of your father alive. Well, thank you. So, Michael, when did you realize that your dad was an internationally acclaimed photographer? Because for you, he's just dad. Right. And it was something that wasn't early on. I knew he was a good photographer. He did wonderful work. He began to produce books probably in the the late 30s or 40s, and has certainly became more prominent. But it was really probably the late 60s or 70s when he really had the international acclaim, probably culminating in, I believe, 79 when he made the cover of Time magazine. And how old were you when you came to the realization? Oh, gosh. I was probably in my teens, early 20s. It probably wasn't until I had left home and uh, gone in the Air Force that his prominence became more obvious. Can you share some highlights of his life? You know, he took me along on a number of his trips, and I was fortunate to be with him when several of his well-known photographs were taken. Uh, I was always welcome to, you know, to look at what he was doing He would explain to me, especially if I had any questions about it. And uh, over the years, uh, we became quite easy at at travel. And in certain way, I enjoyed going with him on those trips. I'm not sure this really uh, was to my advantage at the time. I, I did enjoy it. I got vacations, in a sense, taken out of school early on. I wasn't really paid for it, but it opened up a lot of doors for me and a lot of windows, I should say, of places that he was interested in. And this was initially before World War II and then following World War II when he was working with his Guggenheim Fellowships uh, primarily on uh, the national parks and monuments. So it really opened up opportunities for me to see these areas. And your dad, as a child, he had not the easiest childhood and not the most traditional schooling either. His parents took him to Yosemite for the first time at the age of, was it 12 or 14? Yes, 12. He came in 1916, so he was 14 years old. And that's when his parents gave him his very first camera. That's what uh, we understand, a box brownie. And we have a photograph of him on Wawona Point with his box brownie on his knee. You may have seen that one. Mm-hmm. That sort of changed the course of history. But he was a musician for a very long time, uh, an exceptional pianist. That's correct. At the time he came to Yosemite, he was interested in music and being a pianist. And that was his uh, career goal for many years. The camera was an incidental event that gave him something to do in a way. And he used the camera initially to sort of record where he was. And he went all over Yosemite and and took many photographs with this. And it wasn't until a number of years later, uh, he increased his knowledge about photography through a friend in San Francisco uh, who had a uh, photo finishing shop that helped him learn more about the process of producing the photographs. They weren't that fancy at the time. They were basically snapshots. 
He improved his cameras over the years, but his goal for many years at that period in his life was music and become a concert pianist. And uh, even when he came to Yosemite and met my mother in 1921, he still had the music as his goal in life, the concert pianist. And we have a letter from Ansel to Virginia from San Francisco stating about how he's doing well with teaching music at the time and that that was his ultimate goal and that photography would be an incidental sideline. That changed over the years. And probably in the late 20s, early 30s, he realized that photography had a place in his life. And I think that his story of Monolith, the climb to Half Dome, to the shoulder of Half Dome, with glass plates, was the culmination of his interest in photography because he said later that he knew what he was doing when he took the picture. He knew how to get what he wanted from the fungal event. He had changed from a yellow filter to a red filter to get the final image. And he was then aware of that he had control, in a sense, of the situation. And it wasn't right then, that was 1927, but over the next several years that photography became a much more important part of his life. And he gave up the idea of being a concert pianist. What was it that made him drop the piano and switch to photography? Just that emotion? Well, I think he realized what he could do with photography and how he could achieve the final image that he wanted. And uh, he knew he could do that. I think he probably realized that there were a lot of people out there playing the piano and that he was probably going to be a piano teacher and an accompanist more than a, you know, a solo artist. I I don't know that for sure. He continued to play the piano for many years, but not with the formal practice. And we are fortunate enough to have a number of recordings from 1945 that he did on 78 uh, records, vinyl records. And uh, these have been digitized now, but he continued to play for us uh, into his later life. So we've enjoyed his music as well as his uh, photography. That's wonderful, just as a family, to be able to enjoy it. And what what cameras and technology did he use as a photography career progressed? And how portable was his equipment? Did he have a crew on his hikes, or did he travel solo? What were his camping trips like? Well, in his early days, when he began to use uh, burrows to carry his equipment, he used pretty crude equipment. Uh, he had view cameras, but the some of the early ones were much smaller than what he could take later on. And I can remember going with him on pack trips or weekend trips in the 40s and 50s, where he could backpack with a three and a quarter, four and a quarter view camera. Uh, if he had a burrow or mules, he probably would go up to a five by seven, but I doubt if he got much bigger than that in the backcountry. The 8x10, which he preferred, I think, overall, was really carried by an automobile. It was, wasn't something you took out in the field, at least very far. But his cameras changed. He had, uh, in the 30s, maybe in the late 20s, he experimented with 35 millimeter. In fact, in the 30s, he did quite a bit of work with 35 millimeter, and uh, 
primarily a contacts, Zeiss contacts. And then as the years progressed and he learned about other uh, camera situations, he became fascinated with Polaroid and became a consultant to Polaroid very early in the late 40s with Dr. Land in experimenting and testing uh, cameras and film and help with the development of the Polaroid system. And that was a, uh, a major step forward in his career and also probably somewhat heresy to photographers who weren't so interested in the science side of it and the instant photography process. But Ansel used a number of cameras. His probably his latest and uh, the one he utilized the most in the last years was the Hasselblad with multiple uh, lenses and, and backs. And I think that between the 8x10 and the Hasselblad, that's where we've seen uh, much of his later photography. And it sounds like that on these trips, especially in the backcountry, it was just him and an animal helping to carry the load. Absolutely. When you go out for several days, you've got to take something along for food and for bedding. And uh, in those days, he was using glass plates and they were extremely heavy. So to carry any material to take pictures, the animals became very, very useful, and they were also fun. And I can remember going with him on trips where we used burrows, and I introduced our family, my family, to the burrow in later years. Do you have a favorite camping trip that you can share? Yes, in 1952, Ansel, Virginia took my sister, Anne, and myself on a trip for about a, a week, eight days, something like that, from Tuolumne Meadows in Yosemite out to the Lyle Fork of the Merced River, where ultimately the Mount Ansel Adams photograph, Mount Ansel Adams was identified. It was, it was always there, and Ansel used to call it the tower on the Lyle Fork. But he took us there as a family. We had about three burrows, and we took everything we needed. Plenty of food. Actually, a little uh, bourbon <laughs> and uh, all his camera gear. That was my first really long camping trip with him using burrows. And it was a wonderful experience, and I have good fond memories of it. In the book, uh, you have several photographs taken from that particular area, but not that trip. Well, thank you so much. A few questions for Alan. So I'm speaking now with Alan Ross, and Alan is an internationally known photographer and educator. He worked side-by-side -side with Ansel Adams as his photographic assistant, was personally selected by Ansel to print his Yosemite Special Edition negatives. Alan took on the role of making the Special Edition prints that are the core of this new book, Ansel Adams' Yosemite. Alan, probably the most obvious question, what was it like to work with Ansel Adams? <laughs> It was an absolute delight. He was just a marvelous human being. He had a fabulous sense of humor. He was hardworking, of course. I mean, I'd get to the to the house at about nine in, in the morning, and he would have probably already written a couple of letters to senators or congressmen and been on the phone with another one talking about environmental issues. Uh, maybe you finished writing a, a memo to Polaroid Corporation on some new material they brought out or some testing you do. But it was just a pleasure to be around him all the time. Working in the in the darkroom was especially uh, 
a magical experience. Uh, my job was to be at the sink developing prints that he had just exposed. And uh, watching him print was just like watching a ballet. It was just, it was none of this uh, stuff that you see in movies or, or television about photographers. It's frantic movements under the lens of an enlarger in the dark room and, and stuff. It was just, everything he did was just so completely controlled. And a lot of the reason for that was that if you know what you did, you can modify it. And so he was very careful about counting how many seconds he'd add light over in this in one corner and how many seconds he would subtract light in another area so that everything was very controlled and repeatable. And it was, uh, it was just a, a magic experience to, to work with that. The wonderful things about Ansel was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, his sense of humor. And there was nothing he liked more than telling a, a corny joke. And it was even funnier that he enjoyed telling it multiple times. And he had this mountainous laugh that after the punchline or whatever, he'd just break up laughing. And you just, you couldn't help but start laughing yourself. It was really, it was really a wonderful experience. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> and how would he describe his photography? Uh, he would describe his photography, I think, as just a passion of sharing his his feelings about things that he saw. His work was much more varied than most people give him credit for knowledge of. Uh, he was uh, a consummate uh, professional. Going back to a question earlier about Ansel making the, the switch from music to photography, I think it was in the early 1930s on a repeated trip to Taos, New Mexico, where he would socialize with various artists and stuff there. There's Mabel Dodge Lujan, who her hobby was collecting artists and having parties. And among them, uh, one year was photographer Paul Strand, who was out there photographing and developing negatives. He wasn't printing anything. But he was a major influence in Ansel, where Strand would talk about his own love and passion for photography as an art and, and so on. And something clicked in Ansel on that event, uh, returning back to San Francisco with the conviction that he was going to support his family as a photographer, not as a musician. And that was a, a real turning point for him. The variety of his work was was amazing. Uh, you know, he's known mostly as a landscape photographer because of his passion for the environment and all of that. But his photographic interests were were far more varied than that. He was a a wonderful portrait photographer. Some of his early work, which he's severely criticized for, in my view, was very sensitive and moving. And that was one thing. And just you know, earning a living was something in world war ii his passion for the injustice that was being done to japanese americans was was very important to him as a social conscience and so that work born free and equal uh was a major effort in his life's work with photography so i digress a little bit but uh he was just a a very very rich visionary and stuff. His abstracts uh, and things were still were wonderful. Even the natural abstracts, you know, little abstracts of broken glass, things like that. It was just a wonder to, to see the, the variety of his work. Piggybacking on that, I would like to just take a moment and just read a quick little excerpt of what you wrote in your essay in the book, which was comforting to me, probably comforting to you and to all people who are striving to be photographers. So you write... I think I know which one you're going to talk about. Yes. <laughs> so 
for anyone with the book, when it comes out, it's on page 22. Also surprising, when I first started working for him in August of 1974, he had just remodeled his, quote, workroom, and there were boxes and boxes of equipment and prints strewn around the house and carport. My first duty was to organize and find places for all of it. In going through seemingly countless prints to file them, it struck me how many ordinary, unremarkable images he had made in his career alongside his masterpieces. And that did not bother him one whit. He chopped up any less than stellar effort simply to, quote, playing scales, practice from which he would learn something so that the next time he could hit the right notes. That was exactly it. And one of the things that I like to express to to my own students is that Ansel's, a lot of people think he was just obsessed with technique and, and precision and stuff in, in his work. It was couldn't really be farther from the truth. He wasn't obsessed with technology. As a professional and as an artist, he didn't want to hit a wrong note. So testing film was just nothing more than playing scales, than to practice so that when he did come out and encounter something like Moonrise Hernandez, he could make the photograph. He had, had the background, he had the knowledge of how to handle his equipment and his film. Uh, so it was the end that was important, not the means. And that photo, he took in one shot. He had one shot to get that right. That's correct. And actually, I think Mike was with him when he made the photograph. But uh, living in, in New Mexico myself from Santa Fe, I'm not too far from Hernandez. And actually, I rephotographed it for the book looking at Ansel Adams. And the fact is that if you're driving down from northern New Mexico towards Santa Fe, you come around a corner south of Abiquiu. And all of a sudden, there is the the range of, of the mountains in the background. And so that's 13 miles north of Hernandez. So Ansel, I'm certain, came around the corner, saw these clouds and the moon, and he's thinking for the next you know 20 minutes or so going down the road that there's got to be something I can put in the foreground to use with this moon and clouds. There's got to be something. There's got to be something. And he'd actually photographed the church at Hernandez several times earlier, so I wouldn't be at all surprised that if he's thinking, oh, there's that cemetery and church at Hernandez, maybe that will work. And so he comes around the corner into Hernandez, and there it is. And yes, he did put the car in a ditch and jump out and get the photograph. (laughs) (laughs) And watching the documentary, I thought that he tried to take a second shot, but the light was gone. That's as I understand it as well. And I guess, Michael, you can tell us for sure, because you were there with him. That's uh, the story. He got the first picture, could not find his uh, exposure meter, but he knew that the luminance of the moon was 250-foot candles. So from that, he derived the exposure, took the one picture, put the slide back in, turned the film holder over, but before he could pull the slide, the light was gone from the foreground, from all of the crosses in the cemetery. So that's a one-shot image. There's only one negative. And it's being very carefully taken care of. Well, for a little bit of fun about the finding the light and not finding the light meter, Ansel was enamored with what he called the basic exposure formula. And if you measure the brightness of something in candles per square foot, you can use that to determine the exposure. Whatever value in candles per square foot falls on zone five, that's your exposure time at the square root of the film speed. Wow, I definitely need to (laughs) brush up on my math skills for that. (laughs) 
So that leads me to my next question. What were Ansel's biggest contributions to photography? What was so innovative about his photography? And what were some of his innovative methods in landscape photography or portraiture for that matter? Well, landscape photography, certainly it was his passion for the environment. And that never went away. As I said, I'd get get to work in the morning and he'd already, you know, been talking about some environmental issue with politicians. So and that was pretty much his only interest in politics was the environment. That was just a hugest part of his life. And the other part was also a passion. Uh, Ansel was very social. He loved having company around all the time. Sometimes he'd ask Virginia, is anybody coming to dinner? And she'd say, no, Ansel, no one tonight. And he'd just kind of sigh, oh, well, can we invite the neighbors over? (laughs) He just loved having people around and telling stories. But I think his zone system being able to express a means of evaluating a scene so that you would get you know, hopefully that your desired information, the most important thing is to get the most useful information onto a negative. The art is really expression in the darkroom. The negative is the score and the print is the performance. So I think it was those things that really were his, his real contribution to photography, just being able to evaluate a subject and, uh, he tended to downplay dodging and burning in his books, but I never saw him make a straight print. It was all, all of his prints are expressions of how he felt about the scene. I put out to my listeners if they had any questions, and I got an interesting question from Tim H. He asked, besides heating up the occasional food items, do you know what he liked using his microwave for? <laughs> Uh, well, actually, that started actually when uh, Imogen Cunningham came down to Carmel to photograph Ansel for People magazine. And we had an editor from People from New York there. And Ansel photographed Imogen. She photographed him. And I processed all the film. And then the next morning after the film was dry, I made contact prints of all of the, the exposures. But the editor was getting on on the plane, and we didn't want to hand her a handful of wet prints to take back to New York. So I stuck the prints in the microwave, and voila, we had dry prints. And so Ansel thought that was kind of fun. He would take a wet test print in the darkroom and then stick it in the microwave to see how it it looked when it was dried. (laughs) And it worked. It worked. And that's about the only thing he cooked. Ansel was not a chef. (laughs) (laughs) Well, innovative, for sure. I was going to ask, what are some lessons he taught you that you still apply to your work or your life today and that you teach others? Well, I think the lessons, as I mentioned earlier, were really just watching him print in the darkroom. It was just, it was such a wonderful thing to just watch him put the light onto the paper And uh, this is a good time to explain one thing about the special edition prints and Ansel putting the light on the paper himself is that in the early days with the special edition prints, uh, Ansel probably set the negative up in the darkroom and then turned the, determined the exposure and so on, and then turned the production over to his assistant at the time, might've been Don Wirth, Jerry Sharp, and that era. But Ansel may have made a few of the prints himself, and likely did in the early days especially, but he signed all of the special edition prints with a full signature up until the early 70s when it was pointed out to him that, well, he signed the print, but he didn't actually make the print. So 
uh, he started in when Ted Orland started making the prints in 72, he started initialing the prints instead of using a full signature. And then it was, it was pointed out to him that photographers like Edward Weston often sometimes signed prints EW or Jerry Yulesman signed JNU and so on. So that even the initials didn't mean that he, that he did not make the print. So shortly after I started making the prints in 75, after Ted left, he's had me start to initial. Uh, it was a stamp on the back saying that I had made the print and I initialed it next to that. And Ansel no longer initialed the, the prints. But with the exception of those special edition prints, if Ansel's signature is on a print, he put the light on it. So that, I just wanted to get that distinguishing thing out in the public there, that if it's a bigger print or something like that, and it has his signature on it, he made the print. Oh, that's very interesting. And so he selected you to print his Yosemite special edition negatives, and you talked about the people preceding you. And now the book is, from what I understand, all the pictures are in the book were selected by him before his death. Is that correct? Well, yes and no. I mean, the full extent of the special edition prints is represented in the book. Ansel, during his lifetime, uh, had the right and, and pleasure of, of swapping out images that were going to be in the special edition series. He'd say, well, he'd get tired of one, and then he'd add another one. There's two versions of Moonrise Glacier Point. So this book, actually, it's the, the only publication that has all of the images that were ever offered as special edition prints, which is really wonderful to, to see. I mean, going back as early as 1923 with a photograph of Sentinel Rock, which was a six and a half, eight and a half inch glass plate negative. One of the current ones, Bartlewell Fall, is an eight by 10 glass plate negative. And format, most of the images were in the special edition prints are, in fact, 8 by 10 negatives. But there, it, it's a variety going down to Hasselblad size. But the book contains not only the special edition prints. I think there's 40-some of them all together, including ones that are discontinued. But it also includes a lot of photographs of Yosemite I don't recall having ever seen. So, you know, the people that selected the images for the book really did a marvelous job showing the range of work that he did in Yosemite. So it's, it's really, it's wonderful. I love the book. It's great. For people visiting Yosemite, they are just blown away, as Ansel was when he first got there, and are inspired to take photos. Do you have photography tips for visitors to Yosemite today? Uh, yes. Uh, just give it a few minutes and let the things soak in. Uh, as magnificent as Ansel's photographs of Yosemite are, and clearly they are magnificent, they don't quite convey the sense of scale that you get when you're standing at the base of El Capitan or when you're at what I still call Inspiration Point, which they call Tunnel View now. I mean, it's just, it's awesome. You stand there and just the, the space, the mass of, of the rocks of Half Dome and, and El Capitan, Sentinel Rock, is just, it's hard to articulate. So I like to suggest that people just take your time, just sit there and let it soak in for a little bit and then respond to, to it in your own way. Uh, we had an instructor at one of the workshops that uh, I directed in Yosemite after Ansel was having a hard time dealing with the relatively low altitude in Yosemite. It was a little rough on him. So I directed a couple of workshops in the early 80s. And we had an instructor that 
took his class down to the lower part of the Merced River, and he behind some trees out of vision from the picnic table where they would have their meetings, he'd draw a big circle in the ground. And at that point, Polaroid was always very uh, much a part of Ansel's workshop. So we had all the Polaroid cameras and film that anybody could imagine using. And one at a time, he would tell the students to go over behind these bushes and take a picture with the Polaroid camera. And doesn't matter, but don't show it to anybody because you pull the, the print and, and it develops immediately. So to take a picture and develop the print, but don't show it to anybody, hand the camera to somebody, to the next person, have them go over and take a picture. The only requirement was they had to physically be in, within that circle that he'd drawn on the ground. And at the end of the workshop, we put all of the pictures up on the board. And out of 60 students that we had, there were only like four or five approximately similar photographs. Everybody had their own view of what was photographable from that circle. It was pretty, pretty amazing. So I encourage people to, to see things their own way. Right. Wonderful. So now I'm going to ask some questions to Matthew Adams, who's the grandson of Ansel Adams and president of the Ansel Adams Gallery, which has been operating as a family-run business in Yosemite National Park since 1902. So what would your grandfather think of digital photography, smartphone photography, Instagram, and what equipment do you think he would use today? Would he like using digital and Lightroom? I think to follow on what both Michael and Alan were saying is that he was very enthusiastic about all different kinds of technology and wouldn't necessarily frown on anything one way or another. It's a question that I do go back and forth on in terms of what he would do for his fine art photography, I think that because of his love of the craft, he would probably continue to use silver prints. He would continue to make silver prints in the darkroom as his fine exhibition art. And my knowledge of Digital photography is not extensive enough to be able to say for certain that you can get all of the information in an exposure in digital that you can get in a negative, silver negative. But I think he would definitely be playing with it. And I think there are times when he would be looking at the current technology and saying this is this is fantastic and I want to do this and it's really able to you know he might be able to do things in the digital darkroom that he couldn't do in the uh, in the physical darkroom uh, I know I have heard that sentiment from other photographers who've said you know, I, I love going into the darkroom and I love the smell of acetic acid and uh, just the experience of the darkroom, but there are things that I can do digitally that I can't do with an analog negative. That's very true. Do you have anything that you want to add to that, Alan? I think Ansel would be fascinated uh, with digital technology. I think he would use it. He'd probably love it for portraiture. Uh, the fact that you 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 see the result instantly in the form of a histogram on the camera, I think 
I think he would really love that. But if he were driving down the road and saw Moonrise Hernandez, the uh, digital camera would stay on the back seat. And the, you know, there's no question that uh, that digital technology is improving by the hour, and it's certainly not going away. And it has its own advantages. Uh, it's just a different tool, and I'm I'm having a wonderful time working with some digital techniques. But I still love silver. As a matter of fact, I just finished a, a film-only workshop sponsored by the Ansel Adams Gallery in Yosemite. And it was well-attended and very enthusiastic bunch of people that love film. What was the role of Ansel and his photography in conservation efforts and establishment of and protection of parks? Who would like to take that question? Mike? <laughs> okay. Ansel always said he never went out to take a photograph for the environmental world, but he had a very large collection, and he was very eager to help the environmental world and always made his photographs available. And that goes down to today, because the Ansel Adams Publishing Rights Trust, if they're uh, being requested to to permit the use of one of his photographs for an environmental cause, the trust is invariably going to say yes. And Ansel's support of the environmental world in many ways is uh, what we're seeing in these photographs, although, like I said, none of them were specifically taken for an environmental purpose, but they were certainly used for it, and every one of his publications has been used, I'm sure, by the environmental world in one form or another. Ansel did not like the development From what I've read and seen, he did not like the development cars coming in and crowding, intruding on Yosemite. How would he respond to the crowds we see in Yosemite today? Well, that's kind of an interesting process. When Ansel first went to Yosemite in 1914, he said it was terrible. The roads were dirt and the dust was something awful. And one of the best things that ever happened in Yosemite was the paving of the roads and getting rid of the dust. And he, over the years, when Yosemite was being developed and Ansel was going back every year, he would comment on this. He would tell the superintendent of the park about things that he saw, but usually they were positive experiences. Most everything that was being done in Yosemite Valley was done in a positive way that was improving the visitor experience. I think today the problem with the visitor experience is the crowds. And I'm not sure what can be done about that. Maybe ultimately a, having to buy a ticket for a, for a trip, you know, some sort of restriction may come to be the answer. I, I think he would be disappointed in the crowds that are attending. But in one sense, that's exactly what uh, John Muir was saying. Let's get the people here. And uh, well, we want them to see this place. So it's a two-edged sword. Alan, you may have a well, comment. Well, I, I do uh, from the standpoint that in many ways, the park, I mean, it was pretty crazy last week to just a lot of people. But in many ways, it's much, much better than it was in the, in the 60s when the roads in Yosemite going around is kind of a loop road on north and south of the Merced River. Those roads were all two-way roads. So one car stopped to take a picture of a bear traffic would back up for a couple of miles. And the traffic was just insane because of that two-way traffic. The whole mall in front of the what's Yosemite Village right now was all parking lot. The automobiles owned Yosemite. 
which they don't in any anywhere near the same degree now. So the traffic, uh, while there's still a huge visitation, is not as offensive. I mean, it could take you know an hour or two to get from uh, the lower part of the valley up to the village in the old days, in the old 60s days. And so uh, when they removed the parking lots, made the roads around the valley one way, it had a tremendous impact on easing the effect of the automobile. And what did Ansel's activism on conservation do? And is it still relevant today? Ansel's impact on the conservation world through his photographs has been immense. And we probably don't really fully recognize how much of the world today of conservation has been dependent upon Ansel Adams' photographs of the environment. So his impact is significant today. And I think this new book is a beautiful book. I congratulate you all on it. And uh, I think it's long needed for Yosemite. And I hope that has a successful run. I think a couple of things I wanted to comment on. Uh, Alan commented on the work that Ansel did in various modes. Uh, we are fortunate in having a wonderful collection of Ansel Adams portraits that he was never really given credit for. But his portraiture is spectacular, and we don't know much about it. We don't see very much of it. Another thing is you were commenting about the digital. The year before he died, BBC interviewed him uh, here in Carmel, and they talked about electronic photography. He knew it was coming. He was excited about it. I think he would be absolutely amazed at what's happened in this world. Uh, But I think he would have been positive about it. And I agree with Alan uh, on that completely. If nothing else, he could have, he could have dealt with a lot of the (laughs) damage to his negatives from the fire (laughs) in Yosemite, other issues. I mean, he would have really enjoyed that part. (laughs) Uh, This is Matthew. One thing I think that I would say about Ansel's contribution to conservation is that I I believe that uh, his book with the Sierra Club, This is the American Earth, was one of the first large format books that was really dedicated to conservation. His earlier book, uh, The John Muir Trail, 1938, was utilized by people in Congress in order to convince people to help set aside the Kings Canyon National Park, but that wasn't the original purpose of that book. But whereas the Sierra Club really was the first book that had that as a purpose, and it continued and continues today, where, you know, the trying to demonstrate the beauty of an area in order to save it is widely used. Well, we're very grateful. I'm very grateful to his contributions. Matt, can you talk about what visitors to Yosemite can do there? What kind of things, what kind of programs and classes, exhibits, and any notable works, of course, what people should look for when they visit there? Well, there is, of course, the Ansel Adams Gallery, which uh, we always have a exhibition of Ansel's original works along with various reproductions. But beside that, we have a wonderful museum in Yosemite. It's the first museum in the national park system. They will be celebrating their 100th anniversary in a few years. And so we're expecting some 
great things for that. But I think more than that, what Ansel would say is get out and enjoy it and enjoy the park, go down to the river, into the high country, get out and look around and as Alan said, just sort of absorb it before you try to document it. You don't have to step very far off a trail to feel like you're there all by yourself. That's true. As crowded as it can be, you can get away from the crowds very easily. Yes, we talk about that in our trip report, which is the first episode in this Yosemite series. And we talked about the Happy Isles area and the Fen. And that was one of our favorite spots, just sitting on a big boulder, listening to the birds, listening to the water trickling, and it was so peaceful and nobody else was around us. Yeah. Yep. It's a special little place there. (laughs) So to end, I would love it if each one of you could share a favorite story about your time with Ansel Adams in Yosemite. So who would like to go first? I'm Michael. I'll probably go first. All right, Michael. One of my earliest experiences with Ansel was probably at age seven or eight. He took me up to Tioga Pass on uh, an evening, and it was a weekend probably, and we went what he called camping. We took our sleeping bags and food, went out across the meadows to one of these little tarns, a little lake. And we camped out, and this was 1938, it turns out, I realized later. And the next morning, this first of all, I was sleeping out under the stars, you know, with no cover over me other than a sleeping bag. And the next morning, it was cold, it was frosty, and he sent me down to the to the little uh, lake to get some water, and I slipped off a, a log that was covered with frost and got wet, and it was very cold. And we were very uh, happily taken care of by the ranger at Tioga Pass who had a fire in his stove and I could get warm. And, you know, I'm, what, that was 1938, so I'm five, six years old, maybe. And then we left and went down to Bodie, outside the park, an old ghost town. And I remember being there and I can remember seeing the old town, looking in these old buildings, and I realized just a couple of years ago, when I saw a photograph he took of Bodie, it was dated 1938. So that must have been my trip with him. But on on the way home, we stopped in Levining and went to a restaurant called Bodie Mike's. And I remember they had slot machines, because that's what I remember Ansel playing with nickel and dime slot machines at Bodie Mike's in Levining. Still there, I understand. Anyway, that was a, an experience as a very young person being shown a little bit about camping, uh, some of the adversities of uh, falling in the lake, in a sense, getting cold, getting warmed up, uh, friends who would take care of you, then experiencing a little bit of a gold, you know, a, a mining town, a ghost town. It was a very friendly and wonderful experience that I look back now very favorably on. So that's sort of my first camping trip with Ansel and and an experience in Yosemite. I could picture that as you were talking. Thank you so much for sharing that. Matt, I read that you didn't really realize that your grandfather was famous until you were 
in high school or perhaps even a little bit older? Yeah, when was it? Ansel had been awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1980, and we went to the White House, and that was obviously a remarkable experience for that. But at that point, I think I was 13 and and really didn't grasp the significance of that. And it was a it was a spectacular event, but I was not aware of politics and and all of that. Age 13, I think I spent more time fishing than anything else. <laughs> Later, when I was in high school, it was after Ansel passed away, and I, his obituary was on the front page of the Los Angeles Times. When I was more knowledgeable, a little bit more experience under my belt, um, when I realized this is significant, he was a very important man. Before that, he was grandpa. Of course. Alan, do you have a particular story, a favorite story that you would like to share? Oh, yeah, I have have lots of little ones. But just as a, a little aside to, you know, Ansel never let his his notoriety go to his head. He was actually, you know, kind of surprised about it for most of the time. He was always available. He always kept himself listed in the Carmel phone book. We had people who would come to town and say, you know, look him up and give a call. If he answered the phone, oh, well, would you sign my book, Mr. Adams? Oh, of course. Come on out. Cocktail time. And, you know, bring it out and we'll have a chat and I'll sign the book. Uh, He was very, very accessible. But just a a couple of little things about his temperament and so on. Again, working in the darkroom together, there was one time when uh, he had finished up for the day. It was garbage day, I believe. And we had, we'd been very busy that week and we had a, a pretty you know, regular size garbage can in the dark room that was full of torn up paper and empty paper boxes and chemical containers and stuff. And I'm at the sink developing the last batch of prints for the day. And Ansel decides that the garbage can needs a little tamping down. Well, Ansel is pretty tall. So he, he's, you know, standing up there and he's trying to tamp the garbage down with his foot and he loses his balance and Ansel and the garbage can are both rolling around the floor with garbage, you know, wet paper, uh, you know, on the floor and on Ansel. And he just broke up laughing. He just, isn't that the funniest thing you ever saw? You know, and I couldn't do anything because I'm at the sink developing prints. But instead of, you know, reacting in any sort of negative way, he just broke up laughing. And that's the kind of person he was. One little little aside, in 1975, President Ford's daughter, Susan, was kind of a little interested in photography and came out to Yosemite to take a, a workshop from Ansel. And um, she, by the way, was absolutely delightful, just a, a very, very bright and personable uh, woman. Um, but anyway, there was a big news conference in front of the Ansel Adams gallery that, you know, the president's daughter is there and the secret service are all around. And Ansel had been a public figure for long enough to not usually get very rattled by things. But on this particular event, uh, Ansel getting ready to go down to, to meet the press, he put his Stetson on and we didn't realize until he was already down in front of the press that he had been so nervous he put his Stetson on backwards and so we had we had had to let him sit there and and talk to the press and so on with his hat on backwards and we couldn't very well go uh Ansel your hat's on backwards and then once it was all over once again he just thought it didn't bother him a whit he thought it was terribly funny 
So that's that's who Ansel Adams was, uh, just a, a wonderful, open, cordial human being. Wow. If we could all live like that and just take our little snafus in stride, that, that would be so wonderful. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I just loved speaking with all of you. This has just been so much fun. And the book Ansel Adams Yosemite is published by Little Brown and Company. It comes out next week, October 29th. It features a sequence of photographs selected by Adams before his death, but which have never been published in book form. And it's a beautifully crafted book. And it also includes a forward by President Obama's chief official White House photographer, Pete Sousa, and an essay by Alan Ross, who I'm speaking with, who was Adam's darkroom assistant on Ansel's personal relationship to these images. He writes a beautiful essay. And so go and get this book and enjoy looking at these photographs and Yosemite. And thank you all so much. Again, I was speaking with Michael Adams, the son of Ansel Adams, and Matthew Adams, Ansel's grandson, and Alan Ross. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Send us your stories, tips, or comments to hello at everybodysnps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybodysnps.com. Subscribe for free to Everybody's National Parks on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, become a patron. Just click on support our show on our homepage, everybodysnationalparks.com. We also appreciate if you write a review, give us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. This helps more people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybodysnationalparks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.